0: Hi, and welcome to the Indivisible YOLO podcast, a podcast by and for members of Indivisible YOLO. Today, we're here with Dr. Laramie Taylor, who is the head of the UC Davis Communications Department. Let's do it. I'm Elizabeth Ana Diaz, and today we're here with Dr. Laramie Taylor, who is the head of the UC Davis Communications Department. Dr. Taylor, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Great. Well, to start off, um, who are you, and what area of research do you focus on within communications?
1: Well, as you as you said in your introduction, your kind introduction, I'm the uh, the chair of the communication department here at UC Davis. I've been a professor here for 14 years. Um, I came here after uh, spending my my graduate school time at uh, the University of Michigan. Uh, before that, I was a, a high school English teacher and have spent my life in, in education and working with, uh, working with young people. Uh, my research is really inspired uh, by the work that I've done uh, working with young people and seeing, uh, really watching them develop. I try to understand how uh, media representations influence the, the decisions that we make and the behaviors that we engage in and the most vulnerable time for that media influence is uh, is childhood. Although increasingly we're finding that uh, young adulthood and and uh, and 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 really throughout the rest of the lifespan, media is pretty influential as well. Uh, in terms of the areas of media content that I uh, that I explore, I'm kind of all over the map. I mean, my my, my interest is in how media influences uh, social kinds of interactions and social behaviors. But but that's a huge. Category. Um, so, my, my earliest research looked at uh, sex and, and and violence and the way media influenced aggression and things like that. Um, since then, I've I've done extensive research in uh, in things like support seeking um, and 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 how how people help and support one another um, through mediated channels and how uh, media representations of of uh, gender and gender roles influence the the way we think about ourselves and think about each other in terms of, uh, of gender and, and sex and our expectations uh, sort of built around those categories um, and how that ends up influencing uh, how we interact and how we perceive each other.
0: Two years ago, you were recognized for the National Communications Association. Can you talk a little bit about that recognition and what led to the award that you were given?
1: Yeah. So there was a, a, a paper that I wrote with a graduate student and one of my colleagues, um, Ke Jiang and, and George Barnett from the communication department. Um, we looked at, uh, at, at the, the ways the concept of peace is framed or, or presented um, in Chinese news um, you know, in, in China and uh, in, the, in the news in the United States. Uh, we used kind of an innovative method to look at it. We looked at uh, at the the network of words that occurred uh, in close proximity to the word peace in each uh, in each well in a number of different news outlets um, in each in each country, um, and we found that you know there there were differences that are consistent with uh, some of the sort of fundamental cultural differences uh, that that scholars write about when they compare you know Western European and North American cultures with with uh, East Asian cultures, um, anyway, we we looked at this, and it was it was kind of seen as unique, and uh, and so we we got a a, a top paper award from the uh, the Peace Studies Division of of the National Communication Association. So uh, the the paper that we won the award for was actually the second paper in a in a series that we were working on. The first um, the first project was you know conceptually uh, sort of the foil of the second paper, and that's that we studied the framing of of war and of conflict. Um, you know, what, what we found was that uh, in, the, in, the, in the West, um, conflict and war are, are first of all, um, sort of regionalized and, and concrete in their character, right? We're writing about conflict with the Middle East or with specific actors, right? Specific um, nations or, or, or individuals and, and, and so forth. Um, we didn't see the same thing when we looked at East Asia. Uh, conflict tended to be sort of more broadly framed, and it tended to be framed in terms of um, sort of systems and organizations. It, it was more sort of big picture, right? Um, so in the, in the, in the West, um, when we look at the news, we're seeing um, conflict and violence and so forth framed as, you know, me versus you, whereas in the East it tended to be framed as uh, as, something, as something quite different.
0: Can we speak a little bit about the media influence of American news?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The the influence occurs at a lot of different levels. Um, One of the most insidious um, maybe has has been referred to as the agenda-setting effect. Um, We we see stuff in the news. um, Lots of different issues are covered and so forth. And because we have so little, such a narrow experience with the real world ourselves, we tend to adopt... The uh, the issue agenda that we see in the in the news is our own issue agenda, you know. When when we had uh, fires burn, burning in Northern California uh, last year, it was easy to see that you know fires were a problem, and so forth, because the sm- smoke was thick and we couldn't breathe, and 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 so forth. But um, whether or not the environment is important, or global warming is important, um, or 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 even if a specific you know armed conflict or economic conflict is important, often doesn't intrude itself on our on our real lives or on our awareness. we don't we don't think about whether inflation is important or the 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 uh, trade uh, issues that the presidents engaging with are important. We just don't think about it because it doesn't impact us in an immediate and visible way. Because we don't know, we will adopt the 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 things that the media tells us are important now, we can see this really starkly when we look at uh, some of the some of the um, partisan kinds of conflicts that we see emerging around um, around the you know frankly around the president today. Uh, it's almost like the uh, folks on the left and the right are are, are speaking different languages, um, not not just at the at the level of elites and in the government, but at the levels of the citizenry. You know, you go on Facebook or whatever, and 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 you make some point politically, and then someone else responds. From the other side of the from the other side of the aisle, and he's like, "Well, what are you what are you talking about? Why are you even bringing that issue up?" And it's because to them, it's a super important issue, because they hear uh, in the media um, on the on the news media day after day that this is a this is a really important issue. So, you know, there are people out there who who firmly believe that that uh, the issue of two um, two FBI agents who were enthusiastic. Hillary Clinton supporters, um, and, and exchanged emails about it, um, before and immediately after, uh, the election when Donald Trump was elected, um, is a, is an enormous national scandal. They think it's a, a, a thing that Congress should be investigating and, and, you know, people should be tried for treason and so forth. And, and they think this because this is what they hear prioritized over and over and over on the, uh, on the news that they choose because we're all watching different news news that targets us specifically, based on other media choices that we make and, 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 and uh, our political you know, viewpoints, we tend to have increasingly sort of polarized, not just perceptions of the world, but different issue agendas. We think different things are important. Not only we're we not speaking the same language, but we're not even talking about the same issues anymore. Um, so that agenda setting is, is, is one important function of the news. Um, the the framing function of the news is what we were interested in when we looked at war and peace. and that's the question of how do I uh, understand what an issue means? When I think about um, when I think about war, is it is it a question of sort of national uh, pride and and masculine identity? or is it a question of something that's regrettable and uh, and inevitable? Um, do I think of myself as, uh, as a victim or as a, as a you know a policeman, um, the way I think about uh, peace or, or or conflict or for that matter, just about any other issue is influenced to a certain extent by how uh, that issue is is framed in the news and this is something that that can matter a great deal for uh, for our understanding of issues and 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 can influence the way we vote as well. I'll give you an example. Uh, so there were some experiments done by a scientist named Shanto Iyengar, uh, where he presented people with uh, a series of news stories, and buried in this uh, like normal evening newscast, there was one story about uh, poverty, and there were two versions of the story. Right in 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 one version, um, the newscaster presented some statistics about the economy and about jobless rates and utilization of uh, of um, you know, social support, um, programs like, like food stamps and, and, and rent support and things like that. Um, but it was, it was held at the level of this sort of macro discussion of where poverty comes from and, and, and what gets done to, to address poverty. The other version of this, of this same story, you know, being read by the same news anchor and, and, and so forth, um, shared stories that were really just anecdotes about specific people living in poverty, right? So a little interview with uh, the, the the older woman who's showing that she doesn't have any food in her cupboard, um, short interview with a, a guy that's standing next to a, a tent that's part of a homeless encampment, things like that. It's still about poverty, but it's it's very personal and it's very intimate. Now, the interesting thing comes later. When Iyengar interview, interviews these folks... Um, after they've watched the entire newscast with this one little story manipulated, the people who saw that, that story about individuals uh, attributed the causes of poverty to individuals. Okay? And the people who saw the, the, the macro explanation story attributed the causes of poverty to institutions, organizations, the government, and, and, and so forth. But it went beyond poverty. That tendency to focus on uh, focus blame on the individual or the system was generalized to other issues as well. Now, when you think about it, whether I'm blaming you know individuals, oh you know lazy so and so doesn't work hard enough and they're eating welfare, um, or blaming organizations and institutions like we have a, a, a an issue with inequality because of the way the tax structure has been established, is going to deeply influence how I'm going to vote. And something as fundamental as who gets the blame and whose responsibility it is to fix can be changed by just how a specific news issue is, uh, is, is framed or presented or, or spun, really.
0: In this digital media age, um, we spend so much time on our devices. About how long does the average person spend um, on their smartphone, tablet, or other media device?
1: Profound amounts of time. Um, exposure to mass media content is, pro- I mean, considered collectively is probably the single uh, biggest use of time that we have, including sleep. Um, we spend, uh, on average, um, a little more than ten hours a day paying attention to media content. Now that doesn't that doesn't include you know sitting at your desk and 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 you know working on a spreadsheet or or writing up the. Quarterly report or whatever it is—that's that's you, you know, watching television content, whether it's on your uh, on your phone or on your TV at home or wherever it is. It means listening to music. It means you know surfing the internet. It means engaging in social media. Whatever we do there, and it also includes um, looking at magazines or or, or reading books. Um, although, you know, the average American spends under an hour a day total with uh, with magazines and books, and that includes online books or you know, ebooks and things like that. So um, we're spending a couple hours a day on our phone. Um, most of us, just for sort of passive entertainment or very um, repetitive kinds of games like flash games and so forth, uh, we're spending four to five hours a day on average watching television content. Now, some people are just appalled. I don't watch five hours of television a day, but think about it for a minute um, I, I turned on uh, I mean it's summer as we record this but um, I turned on the, the the first episode of the West Wing um, I was appalled a week later to find out that I was in the middle of season three um, I don't I don't think I'm watching all the time but uh, the truth is you know it it adds up we do a lot of sort of non-conscious non deliberative viewing um, and listening and so forth and and that that tend to 10 to 11 hours, that's, that's sort of discrete media time. A lot of that time, I mean, probably, you know, three or four hours of that time is actually media multitasking, you know, where you're, 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 you're watching the TV on the big screen in your living room and at the same time you're, you know, messing around on your phone um, or you're, uh, you know, listening to music while you're reading, you know, whatever it is that you, you read for entertainment. Um, so when you add all that up, it's it's even it's even more time. I mean, if if we could translate the time we spend with media into some kind of profitable enterprise, we would have not just another full time job. We'd have a full time job with dramatic amounts of overtime, right? And we start this media saturation when we're when we're young, right? Um, the uh, American Academy of Pediatricians came out with this recommendation a few years ago they said no screen media under three years old just there's no reason for it it's it's harmful so don't do it just this last year they amended their recommendation they said be very careful with the screen media you use and this is what you should do for for two and under and so forth and uh, when they were interviewed and they said well you know what new research has has been has come to light has been produced that justifies this reduction in the in the age limit and they said well Nobody followed it. They said, we no longer think it's realistic to expect that children, two and under toddlers, right, infants, won't be exposed to screen media. And so we tried to give guidelines that people might actually follow. So, you know, we're, we're, we're involved from a very, very young age. And by the time children are, you know, six seven eight years old, they're getting into this 10 hours a day range. Now, considering children at that age should be sleeping 12 to 14 hours, you know, you do the math.
0: Now, few corporate conglomerates run um, most mass media industries that folks consume. Can you speak a little bit on that?
1: Yeah. So, um, boy, back back in the back in the day, um, the federal government undertook uh, to make sure that there was diversity of perspectives and opinions and so forth in uh, in the in the mass media. Um, You know, it was it was it had limited success, right? Television for decades was uh, sort of very efficiently undertaken by having three or four different national networks um, that kind of divided up the entire television audience. And you know, remember in the '60s and '70s, that was most of America, right? On on any given evening, more than half of all Americans were watching TV, watching one of those four channels. But as uh, as cable um, came in and and you know became adopted by more and more Americans um, in the in the 1980s. Uh, Congress said, well, you know, there's there's lots of available or lots of alternatives available to people, so we don't have to be as as protective. We don't have to uh, we don't have to worry about um, choices and so forth. We don't have to worry about monopoly. So you know, go for it and and merger away and and they did. Um, at at this point, I mean. Books are a really good example. There, there used to be, um, you know, just hundreds of book publishers in the United States, right? Distinct uh, presses, independent, functioning with their own editors, their own boards, their own ownership, and so forth. Now, more than 90% of the books in the United States are, are published by a, about six different companies. And you know, you 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 look at your your book, and it's not Penguin books anymore. Penguin used to be independent. Now it's Penguin, Random House somebody else. Right. Um, there's just a handful of companies that, that, own everything. I mean, audiences today are probably most familiar with it. Looking at the, 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 content market, right? Because we've, we've watched Disney sort of suck up all the action movie, uh, oxygen, right? So they, you know, bought star Wars and they bought Pixar and they bought, uh, Marvel and they, they just keep growing and growing. Um, but the same kinds of consolidation have been happening in, in in other types of media industries as well. It's not just the content that's owned that by by fewer and fewer entities. Um, you know, more and more of the newspapers in the United States are owned by just a handful of of really massive conglomerates that own each of them hundreds and, and thousands of newspapers. And then we see a lot of companies that own uh, properties in, in multiple. Uh, multiple media, right? So News Corp, um, the the parent company of of Fox, not Fox like 20th Century Fox, which is now owned by Disney, but um, but but Fox like Fox News, um, also owns newspapers, including um, including the Stockton, uh, I think it's the Stockton Record, just down the just down the road from us. Um, so they own they own all this kind of stuff, which means, of course, that. Ultimately, um, the potential for fewer and fewer unique editorial voices is being uh, represented. In addition, every one of these sort of massive um, ownership conglomerates is, is corporate in its character, right? It, it used to be that there were a lot of uh, individual families or, or private individuals that owned, owned newspapers, We know that in California, in Northern California, the Hearst Castle is just down the road, and that was, you know, the Hearst Hearst family, and they owned uh, they owned big newspapers, and 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 they had a distinctive editorial voice. That's not that's not a thing anymore, right? I mean, it's it's a name, just like Knight Ridder is a name that's attached to newspapers, but it's owned by by a bigger corporation. Fewer and fewer potentially editorial voices. So. Um, and, and, and all sort of corporate owned. And, and there's a distinct set of interests shared by massive multinational corporations that is not necessarily the interest shared by, you know, union members and, um, and teachers and manufacturers and, uh, you know, the people, so that's that's potentially uh potentially problematic as well now the response that um that usually comes out is you know it's 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 gonna be fine because uh all of those sort of diverse perspectives that people might have that we'd want to see represented also represent a market, and if there's a market, that market's going to be served right so presumably if 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 you know a million of us are interested in a, a a progressive newspaper. Then a progressive newspaper would emerge from this corporate whatever in order to in order to um, meet that market demand. But of course, that misunderstands the concept uh, of opportunity cost. Opportunity cost does not mean you know if I if I don't do this, you know what's what am I giving up? It means what's my next best option, right? So. The opportunity cost is the difference between what I earn doing that and what I would earn doing something else. So if I think I can make more money um, publishing something that's that's not going to serve that little audience with that million dollars or whatever, then then that's what I that's what I do instead. Um, so yeah, ownership ownership consolidation is uh, is at a point now in media that would have been impressive to the robber barons. Um, before you know, antitrust laws were passed in the United States. Um, only now, instead of being the United States, uh, it's global.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the growth of global audiences.
1: Yeah. So one of the one of the um, interesting things that's that's happened um, with with technology is that we've been able to reach audiences on a scale that's you know just never never been possible before. Um, you think about Sub-Saharan Africa, for example. Um, this is a, a a tremendous geographical area and the, the population density is relatively low and, uh, infrastructure was just never developed, right? There are lots of uh, villages and things where there, there's no, um, there's no sort of wiring for electricity. Electricity that's produced is, is local, you know, NGOs come in and, uh, Provide um, solar, small-scale solar installations and wind installations to provide local power for, um, you know, health installations and things like that. But, but that's where they are. So, um, you know, providing television, and and cable and so forth is was never really was never really an option. When you look at the uh, the the big NGOs that went into say sub-Saharan Africa or or even most of India. Um, for, like, health promotion campaigns and things. They they didn't even try to do television because it wasn't going to reach enough people. Um, they'd use radio, and in a lot of the villages, they had to deal with questions of, how are we going to make sure radio is consistently available to enough people? So people didn't have telephones. Um, they didn't have uh, access to television. And then satellite technology became cheaper and cheaper, and cellular technology became um, became cheaper and cheaper. And then... Just the whole the whole phase of wired communication got skipped in huge parts of the world, um, and of course, what that means is that um, you know now people have cell phones with uh, data of one kind or another on them. Um, they have access to uh, satellite transmissions, even if they're running them off of a generator, so they can get global media content um, in in parts of the world that didn't really have. Any consistent, meaningful media contact just you know a couple decades ago. Um, at the same time, you know that this this uh, technology boom in communication is happening. We had a global population um, dramatic expansion, right? Um, in in my lifetime, um, I'm only forty years old, and uh, and in my lifetime, the population of the of the planet has has increased by a third, right? We've added billions plural of people, and those people constitute a potential audience. In addition, urbanization has continued. So um, at the beginning of the century, uh, you know, Western Europe and North America and, uh, you know, parts of Asia were um, arguably urban uh, societies or cultures, but much of the rest of the world was still primarily agricultural. That's not true for much of the world today, right? And with greater um, urbanization, um, comes uh, more people in the same place, more people with some education, more people with some disposable income that they can spend on media content, which means more audiences that are being targeted um, by media by media producers and distributors. One of the interesting effects of that is that um, we get this proliferation of of um, of different kinds of content because a smaller and smaller percentage of the audience, still means a million people or ten million people or a hundred million people who are available to to pay for your content or to, to pay attention to your advertising and constitute a valuable audience um, so we see this this dramatic increase in um, in audiences which frankly is one of the reasons uh, that globalization of media industries is, has unfolded the way it has because there's more and more opportunity for uh, for frankly for money um you know Avengers Endgame was uh, uh is a is a billion dollar motion picture right um less than a third of that comes from the United States the rest of it is from global audiences um and it it made a billion dollars in you know what 6 months little, little less than 6 months um which is which is amazing and then it'll go on to make another couple billion dollars in... uh in, you know, secondary markets, DVDs and airplane videos and and, uh, being on TV and and, and things like that. Um, So this huge swell of audiences happening at the same time as this development of technology is part of what's uh, led to this this consolidation because, frankly, media um, has never been as attractive uh, as it is today.
0: What role does the United States play in global media?
1: Well, obviously, American-owned companies um, spend, a lot of, spend a lot of money and create some very sort of high-profile types of content. Um, and American companies also own production and distribution facilities throughout the world. But that doesn't mean that all the world's content is American. Uh, in fact, there are some distinct uh, sort of local variants that really are worth paying attention to.
0: Great. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We just spoke to Dr. Laramie Taylor, head of the communications department at UC Davis. This was part one of a two-part series on mass media and its influence. If you're interested in joining Indivisible Yellow's events for the week, you're welcome to join us on Tuesdays at 10.30 a.m. for Action Coffee at Easel Cafe in Davis, Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m. for beer nights at Super Owl Brewery at the Westlake Plaza in Davis, and Sunday morning for Sunday morning cafe from ten thirty AM to noon. And that location does rotate, so you're welcome to check out our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash indivisible YOLO. That's the name of this podcast. Again, that is Facebook.com forward slash indivisible YOLO for more information. As always, thanks for listening.